Uh, I want to start with a story and just going to help us connect with our passage of Scripture today. And um, I want to tell you about Will Ford. Will Ford. Will actually tells a very powerful story himself about the Christian faith of uh, some of his ancestors who were enslaved in Louisiana. We have a, a picture of Will here. And some of Will's ancestors were actually beaten to death for praying. If you know much of the, the history of you know, slavery in our country, that this happened at times, that slaves were banned from praying at times. And so, but they were strong Christians, and so they prayed anyway. They didn't pray for their own freedom because they didn't necessarily think that they would be free in their generation, but they prayed for the freedom of their children and the future generations. And what they would do is they would take this pot, this kettle that was used for cooking, for cleaning, and they would turn it upside down. They would do this in the dark of night so that they would not be found. And they would put small rocks under the lip of the pot so there was a small gap. And then they would lay down on the ground and they would pray their prayers into the pot so that it would muffle their prayers and hide their prayers so that they wouldn't be discovered. Freedom, one of the slaves, she decided to keep the pot and keep the story alive in her family. So she handed this pot to her daughter Harriet Lockett, who handed it to her daughter Nora Lockett, who handed it to her son William uh, Ford Sr., who handed it to his son William Ford Jr., who handed it to his son, William Ford III, who is Will Ford, who received the story passed down generation to generation. And one day, Will had a dream at night. And in his dream, uh, Martin, Luther, Martin Luther King Jr. was in his dream. Martin Luther King Jr. showed up to give Will a ride somewhere, and um, before he was going to get into the vehicle, uh, Will was going to pick up a white backpack. And MLK, MLK said to him, don't pick up the backpack, you don't need it. And he woke up and he was trying to pray and ask God, what does this dream mean? And what God revealed to him was uh, that as a black man, that he actually had a lot of white baggage that he was hanging on to. This is what God spoke to him. This is his personal testimony. They had a lot of white baggage. And that God was calling him to let go of it. And to start really working towards bringing people together. And so Will started this revival prayer initiative. And uh, it was using this, this prayer kettle that, that had been passed down in his family. And it was a, a goal. The goal was to reach people for Jesus, but also bring people together to create more unity and to uh, help with the, some of the racial division in our in our country. And so, Will wanted to join in with the prayers of his ancestors, the United States, with this prayer kettle, telling the story and gathering people to pray. It was MLK Day. They had a prayer event at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. And another man showed up at the prayer event, a guy called Matt Lockett, who was there under very bizarre circumstances. This is a picture of uh, Will and Matt together. 
Matt Lockett showed up. Matt is interesting, actually, because Will knew some of his family history, at least the short family history of the, the prayer, through the prayer kettle that was passed down. But uh, Matt actually didn't know any of his family history. It had been kind of, a lot of the historical records have been lost. He'd always been interested in uh, learning more, but they, their family uh, research had just kind of hit a wall, really. And so uh, Matt, Matt has been trying to trace out his history, but Matt was there because he'd had a dream as well one night. And in this dream, he dreamed of a prayer movement that had been started that would bring healing to our nation. And I've got to tell you, this is, for me, this feels like one of the more emotional stories I've come across that I'm going to tell. I'm going to try and keep it together. The best is at the end. Um, it, was a, it was a dream. And in the dream about this prayer movement, Matt met this guy. In the dream, he met this man named Lou Engel. And when he woke up, he thought, well, that's very strange. I met about this prayer, this, this, this prayer movement about racial unity and this guy, Lou Engel, in my dreams. So he searches online and discovers that Lou Engel is a real person who's a part of a prayer ministry. So he gets in contact with him, and Lou says, well, we're doing this prayer event on MLK Day at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. Why don't you come out and be a part of it? And Matt's thinking, I don't know if I want to do this. I had this weird dream. I'm not sure. Should I do this? So he shows up, and at the event, Will Ford is there telling the story of the prayer pot, the prayer kettle. And as he tells the story of Harriet Lockett preserving this prayer kettle and this prayer story in her family, Matt Lockett couldn't believe it. He said it was like a Moses moment, like my name, my family name is being mentioned in this lineage of Will Ford. Like, what is this? So the two men, Will and Matt, are very intrigued by this. So they got together. They're talking about this disconnection over this name, but they, they find out that the, the names are spelled differently and their families live in completely different places. There's no connection between it. But they became friends and they started praying together. Well, about a decade passed, and this prayer kettle, this, these prayer initiatives, these prayer rallies really forged them together in a very deep way. Now, fast forward, Matt's church, Matt's on the right, Matt's church was doing a prayer event at the place, the location of the last battle of the Civil War, and uh, where General Lee had finally retreated. There's still bullet holes in the building there. Uh, General Lee had retreated there, and then he finally surrendered there. And so they held a prayer event at this location as a symbol, as a way of showing, um, you know, a vision of, hey, you know, more unity, um, all of those kind of good things. And so at this, at this event, after the, the prayer event had finished, they, they went into the visitor center there, the historical visitor center, and Matt picks up a book randomly, a random book that he saw, picks it up. It falls to a page that talked about the last battle at Lockett's farm. He said, well, that's, again, he couldn't believe the connection with his name. What is this connection? And so he starts talking to the man who works at the visitor's center. And after more research, after more, more time, after, again, feeling like there's a strange connection with this, and he says, yeah, this, this, it turns out that this isn't just any property, that the, the, the location where the last battle was fought was at a place called Lockett's Farm. And so Matt discovered that the last battle defending the institution of slavery was 
fought on a farm that was named after his family. And after more research, it took a couple more years of trying to put the pieces together and more research, he found out that it wasn't any family farm. It had belonged to his family. And he felt a lot of shame initially over this and some sadness over this. But as they continued to press in, as they continued to talk, as they continued to learn, they uncovered more and more. They uncovered something that had almost been lost to history that I think has the power to bring such unity and healing to our nation. I'm going to pause the story there. I'm going to tell you it, of course, at the end. So stick with You can't go anywhere. Now you're stuck. You're locked in. You have to know the conclusion. That's the power of a story. So we're continuing in our series called uh, The Real Jesus, and uh, we're going through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, this is a long-term thing for us, so we'll do this maybe up until Easter time. We're doing it in chunks. This is maybe, I think, Sermon 18 today in the series, bit by bit, chipping away, going through it. We've got to look at the Jesus of Scripture. And today we're going to be in uh, Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 21, or 31, excuse me, starting at verse 31 through 35. And if you don't have a Bible, there's free Bibles in our pews. Take it and keep it if you don't have a Bible, and it will come up on the screen as well. So let's uh, pray, and then let's read. Lord, I thank you you're with us. Thank you for the power of your word. Lord, teach us today how to be your family. Teach us today the power, the truth of your word. Lord, bring unity, bring healing, bring us together in a way that only you can do. In your name, amen. Continuing on from last week, it says, and his mother, that's talking about Jesus, and his mother and his brothers came And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother And my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word. Now, in ancient cultures and in more traditional societies, it is the family that gives you your identity. It's the family where you get your identity from. So it's very radical for Jesus to downgrade his own biological family and say that actually it's his disciples, the church, the new church community that he's forming, that's actually family. Normally, family's on the inside of the house and others are on the outside of the house. Here, it's reversed. We have to understand that Jesus is not destroying family. Jesus is not against family. Marriage is super important. Family is super important. But what he is revealing is that there's something even higher than family. Something even greater. It is to make disciples. Because disciples become family. We have to understand how hard this would have been for them to hear. This would have been very difficult for them to, to, to hear. We might think of the bond between mother and child as being one of the strongest bonds. I mean, you mess with that bond, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. You mess between the bond between a mother and a child, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. We might think that's the greatest bond, and Jesus says, nope. 
It's not the greatest bond. The greatest bond is between Jesus and his followers. Jesus entered the human family in order to show us the divine family. And this is very poignant for us because we live in a day and age of fractured identities. A day and age of, of fractured identities. So for them, they wouldn't have, you know, well, well, think about it for us. We, you know, we wouldn't be that bothered by somebody in our family doing something. But for them, you know, we may not even like our families. We, 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 we live apart from our families. We try and get rid of our families. A lot of people don't like their families. But, but for them, they, they, they really valued family a lot. In our society, we've got a fractured, you know, the family unit has been fractured in many ways. The sacredness of marriage has been fractured. Even, even positive cultural identities, positive expressions of cultural identity, have been fractured. And because we need to know who we are, because we're, we're, designed, we're, we're, we're designed to belong to something else, something bigger than ourselves, we, we all need to receive an identity, to know an identity. And so if, if our identities get fractured, we'll look everywhere else for it. We're on a constant search to know who we are. So you know, we'll look to our gender as the most important thing to our identity. That's the most important thing about who I am is my gender or my, my ethnicity or, or my color or my sexuality or my political team or my nationality. We'll look to anything and everything to help to define and to determine our identity in, in, a, in a culture of fractured identities, that's what we're desperate for. And so this would have been very offensive for Jesus to have said this. I mean, he's saying it about his own mother. You know, who is my mother? Well, if you're sitting at my feet, you're, you're my mother. And his actual biological mother is outside the door. It's hard for us to get into the mindset of this of how offended they would have been and how hard this would have been to hear. So let me do my best job to offend everybody right now. <laughs> I want to talk about, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not kidding. It's a big one today. It's a doozy today. I'm going to get in trouble today. I'm going to talk about three groups. Three groups. I want to talk about people. I'm just going to pick three groups because I can't offend everybody. If I offend everybody, then no one would ever come back. So I'm just going to offend three different groups today. And if you're not in the group, that means I like you more and you're off the hook. So... Uh, <laughs> Let's talk about those of Asian descent, those of African descent, and those of European descent, just to pick a couple of small things uh, here, uh, because we have to take the things of Scripture, and, and we, we read them as the historical things in the past, and we're like, oh, that's interesting, that's fun, oh, that was, you know, must have been nice, uh, but we don't actually understand the emotion of it and, and, and the power of it. So uh, let me start with, with, with Asians, um, those of Asian descent, obviously uh, beautiful cultural heritage and background, um, amazing traditions and style and in, in lots of ways. Um, but those, those cultures, Asian cultures, tend to be uh, what's called an honor and shame culture. And there can be really good things about that. Uh, but also there can be some challenges to that. So an honor and shame culture means this, means if you do something honorable, your whole family gets honor. If you do something shameful, your whole family is shamed. That creates enormous, um, how do I put it, almost an enslaving perfectionism to live a certain way, to, to adhere to the family rule in some way, or to be a certain way. Because if you're outside of that, then you're going to bring shame on the family. And that, that can lead, some have said, I would never say this or think this, but others have said or thought that actually that, that honor and shame value that can have some really positive things to it actually can though lead to a sense of drivenness. 
And you do see this in, in Asian cultures. There can be positive things about that, about the, the value of education. That can be a role positive, but also it can lead to a drivenness of perfectionism. And so think about America. America is a place where there's a lot of immigration, a lot of people coming in from all over the world, historically, not just today, but historically as well. Of course, that's what America is. It's, it's a place where people have come from everywhere and say, like, let's do something new. And people of Asian descent coming into this place will find themselves having a displaced identity. Because there are forces that say, well, are you going to lean back into an honor and shame culture, or are you going to take on a new type of culture? How are you going to find your identity in a culture that doesn't value honor and shame? Because in this culture, if your family member does something ridiculous, you're like, that's on them. It doesn't say anything about me. I'll just get rid of them. I don't need them. I'll just unfollow them on social media, and then they're out of my life, right? That's, that's how we tend to think about it. Um, and so, so for somebody, and obviously it depends on first generation, second generation, you know, the more generations and how much assimilation happens, how much people are in their own enclaves and communities that they have, or how much they maybe take on the broader kind of uh, cultural standards or values. All of that, there's some different factors in there. But the question is, anybody from an Asian descent, is what is going to define your identity? There's lots of powerful forces, good and bad, that want to shape you into something. And if you've got a fractured identity, the temptation is to want to push back into some of the most negative versions of those identities. Let's talk about people of African descent. Of course, in America, um, with the history of slavery, you know, those descended from the slave trade didn't just have a shattered identity, had a, had a completely destroyed identity. Obviously, people now immigrating from, from African countries, you know, there's still a mismatch of values. If you're bringing different values in from another country into America, what's going to determine your identity? Uh, but specifically for those of uh, descended from, from uh, the slave trade, th there was a, such a destroying of identity, what, what, what kind of identity do you choose? What, what kind of identity do you lean back into? Because for African cultures, there, there's a very deep wealth of cultural expression, of artistic expression, a deep value of community. Personally, I love the joy that I see in a lot of Africans. I, I think a lot of cultures need to learn from that, just a deep joy. But others will point out Others will, will point to, well, but there's also a deep-rooted, uh, you know, history of, of um, demonic ritual as well as tribalism. These are some of the more negative uh, things. I know you're not supposed to say anything bad about, about different cultures, but, you know, that's, uh, that's my goal today is to offend everybody, so that's what I'm doing. Um, and even, even in some places for some people, an Afrocentric ideology, we're better than others. That's true. And the temptation is, is what kind of identity, depending on your heritage, your background, what kind of identity are you going to find for yourself? Are you going to claim for yourself? What's it going to be? What are those of, of European descent? If you can tell, that's, that's me. It's hard to tell, I know. Uh, European descent. What about, well, the, hey, there's, 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 there's some good things. There's a, a rich culture of, of literature and scientific discovery and those things, but... You know, many, will, of course, will point to kind of the, the, the horrific history of colonization and um, the dehumanization of industrialization and also a Eurocentric superiority as well. 
where our culture is better, or our ways are better, or we're a better people. You know, not everyone thought that, or everyone believed that, but that's a common thing. I mean, one of the things you've got to realize is when you travel to other continents and other countries, everybody thinks their country's better. Do, do we know that? Everybody grows up thinking their place is the best place on earth, because it's their place. It's the very rare person that says, I don't like this, I want to go somewhere else. That happens, but where did I get to? I lost my, 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 my train of thought here. So, uh, now, American culture has been predominantly shaped by a European background. Of course, that's changing for two reasons. One is uh, those of European descent tend to ha- are now having less children, so that's going to change the demographics, but also obviously we're having a ton of immigration as well. So that's changing our, our demographics as well. And one of the challenges for somebody like myself is where do I get my identity from? H- how do I decide who I am because people of European descent now have a, also have a displaced identity, even in, in America, even though it had a strong history of, of European influence and always will have that influence in one sense, unless it's completely destroyed, of course. Um, the question is, with that, there, there, there can be a sense now for a lot of people of European descent to say, well, I, I kind of have a lot of shame over my heritage, over the past, over where I've come from and all that's happened. And so... If I personalize this to myself, I've got a couple options here. Do I take on a disdained and ashamed identity because of some of the worst things in the past, because of my heritage? Do I, do I adopt that identity? Because there's, there's forces in the culture that want, would want to put that on me. So do I take that on and say, oh, I'm just going to be ashamed of my own identity or my own heritage? Is that what I should do? Or do I do something maybe even worse? Maybe do I push back into a grandiose sense of, well, European culture is, you know... It's pretty great, better, you know, not just better, it makes me better. That's the temptation. Here's the challenge. In a culture of fractured identities, the powers at work want us to hold on to our bloodlines, want to push us into our bloodlines to define us, to make us who we are. So you can either lean into, you see things, you see your bloodline through a lens of shame or a lens of innocence. You can see your bloodline through a lens of of aggressor or a lens of victim. The problem is history's not that neat, is it? It's it's, it's a real problem. History's not that neat. You can't just neatly make these categories and then lump people into them. There are... Bad people everywhere and good people everywhere. There are things about certain cultures that are wonderful and need to be preserved and things about cultures that need to be redeemed as well. Instead, we have to look at Jesus and we have to look at what Jesus says and what Jesus does because Jesus is making a new bloodline. Jesus is making a new bloodline. And if you sit at the feet of Jesus, if you come into the house of Jesus and sit at the feet of Jesus and receive the message of Jesus, you are in a new bloodline. You have a new identity that changes everything about you and redefines you completely. This is the power of the gospel of the message of Jesus. Now, if you're wrestling with this, well, actually, let me say this. Think about it. Let me illustrate it like this. Think of a powerful magnet. Let's say the magnet is the color yellow, just to pick a random color. And then a piece of iron. And let's say the iron is the color red. So we've got yellow and red. Just randomly pick those colors. Don't think too much about them. Think about a very powerful magnet. 
there's an invisible force that you cannot see with your eyes. Can you see a magnetic force under a microscope? Actually, is that true? Can you? I don't know if you can. I think you can. Can you? <laughs> I asked that question like I knew. Phew. Whew. You can't see it, but it is real and it is powerful and it will cling to that iron. And it is so powerful that over time that iron will itself get magnetized and cling. Other things will better stick to it. That is an illustration of the identity that we have in Jesus. You cannot see it. The objects look completely different on the outside, but there is such a profound bond that is completely spiritual, completely invisible to the eye, but it bonds you together so much so that you're transformed by it that others can bond to you as well. Do we understand the message of Jesus? Do we understand what Jesus has come to teach us and what he's come to show us? Now, if we're struggling with this, some people will struggle with this kind of message. I just want to say, if you're struggling with it, don't get angry with me. I'm just saying what Jesus said. His own mother, his own brother showed up, and he's like, well, who is my mother and my brothers? Well, it's anyone who's going to obey the will of God. He said, I don't get mad with me. I didn't say it. He said it. So if we don't like it, if we're like, well, but we're denying people's cultures, or well, but, but, but what about people's racial identities, and what about all these ethnic things, what are you saying about all these things? Don't get upset with me. If you don't like it, then you don't like Jesus, and that's your problem. You like something else. Maybe some ideas in the world are floating around your brain and have stolen the actual truth of Jesus from your heart that can actually give you life rather than locking you into judging people into the categories that the world wants to put on them. Now, this is such a profound point. I want to keep going into it, going deeper into it, but to go deeper into it, I've got to like back up a little bit, take a left turn, circle back around, and put it all together, put a bow on it. So give me a second here. Change gears slightly, but it's the same point. We'll get there in the end. We'll, we'll, we'll wrap it all up at the end. What else is happening in this, in this passage we looked at here? What else is happening? Well, Mark himself is doing a sandwich. He's, he's, he likes sandwiches. He's doing a literary sandwich. I'm sure he wouldn't be opposed to eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich right now. Or He's a Jew, so in the New Covenant, he could have had a BLT or something, but that's not what he's talking about. Mark loves literary sandwiches. He loves telling, he loves organizing the events of Jesus in his gospel in a layered way. So he puts in, they're like bookends, but you could call them bread ends. He puts in one point, and that's the first piece of bread. Then he puts all the filling in. That's, that's the, 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 call, the, the meat in the middle, I guess. And then he puts in the last piece of bread, and that makes a big, one big, giant, juicy sandwich. And each layer has its own point. Each layer has something it tells you. There's three points to it. But when you take the bite of the overall thing, you get a mega point that blows your brains out. So let's get into the mega point that, that Mark is making right now in this literary sandwich that he's put together. So the first slice of bread was a couple of weeks back that we looked at. I knew this ahead of time, but I can tell you guys about the secret story sandwich that Jesus put into, that Mark put into the gospel here. So I've been excited to tell you about this. So the first layer of bread, we already looked at this, was Jesus' family before the crowds were overwhelming Jesus, and they're like, Jesus is insane. That was their conclusion. Remember that from a couple of weeks back? They're saying Jesus is insane. So they're, 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 they're threatening to come, threatening that they're, they're going to come and seize Jesus. That was the goal. So that's the first layer of bread. Then the filling for the sandwich is um, all the stuff that we looked at last week where 
the, Pharisee, the Pharisees show up. They're accusing Jesus of doing uh, all of his miraculous works by the power of Beelzebul. He's doing it by the power of Satan. He's, uh, and then Jesus goes into the unforgi- unforgivable sin. Then he's talking about the strong man. And you've got to bind the strong man to, get, you know, to, to then plunder the strong man's house. And really, you've got to get all his goods out of, the, of his house if you don't bind the strong man first. And that's, that's, that's all the feeling. That's what we looked at last week. All right. Then Mark brings us back again to Peter's house. Because they're actually, this is Peter's house they're in. The apostle Peter, this is his house. Back again to Peter's house, where again, it's full with people. The crowd is there. And it's in this context that Jesus says, you're truly my family if you do the will of God. That's the last layer of bread. That's the, the sandwich. So each point, each layer has its own points, and then there's one giant mega point. And here it is. Let me, let me try and, I'll summarize it at the end, but, but, but give, me, give me a moment here to, to, to get this out. This is beautiful. The circumstances that Jesus is in right now. He's in Peter's house right now. And the Pharisees are coming to seize Jesus, to bind Jesus. The Pharisees are coming to do this. They're coming to trap Jesus, to get Jesus, to accuse Jesus. And they're doing it in a very direct way, accusing him to being satanic. They're trying to fight him and do all this stuff. Very direct way. But also, you know, Jesus, so Jesus is telling this parabolic, this narrative version of this binding the strongman thing, as he's in a house, Peter's house that's filled with people, where people are trying to come and seize him and control him and bind him. It's not just the Pharisees, but also Jesus' family at the same time are trying to come in. They're, they're being a little more subtle about it. They're like, he's insane. He's lost his mind. He, you know, he's bonkers. He's out of his you know, out of his mind completely, and they're trying to come in. They're trying to control him, trying to seize him. They're the ones trying to bind him. Jesus is t- talking about, he lifts from this circumstance to then reveal the spiritual truth about binding Satan because the Pharisees and his family are trying to come into a house to bind him in the house. That's where Jesus gets a lot of his material from the exact moment that he is in. He, Jesus has a way of turning life events into little stories, into little narratives, because they teach us something. So it looks a little different between the Pharisees and his family, between Jesus' foes and Jesus' family. It looks a little different, but both groups are subverting the mission of Jesus. Both groups are get, trying to control Jesus, trying to define Jesus. Jesus has come to start a new family, a new way of doing things, a different way of doing things, to reveal what have been concealed what had been hidden to show people a new way and not only the Pharisees not only the religious leaders of the day but his own biological relatives are there to domesticate him to tame him to say this is wild this is crazy you can't be doing and saying all these things what are you doing Jesus they're trying to bind the strongest man that's what they're trying to do they're trying to bind the strongest man and when we when we try to put our limitations on Jesus, when we try and draw lines around Jesus, when we try and say, try to define the identity of Jesus ourselves in our flesh, or try to categorize Jesus in certain ways, or try to say, well, Jesus would be okay with this. When we try and put words in the mouth of Jesus, what he's saying is, it's satanic. Any attempt on our part to control him is to play into Satan's hands. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's to play into the hands of evil. Even fast-forwarding towards the end of the gospel, what happens is Peter 
is trying to convince Jesus not to continue on because of all these threats and warnings of like Jesus is going to get crucified. And Peter's like, you know, trying to talk him out of it and trying to get him to, you know, change his plans. And what does Peter say? Get behind me, Satan. The hidden message, the, the big juicy sandwich that Mark wants us to take a bite out of is this. Is anything other than the will of God is the will of Satan. Anything other than the will of God is the will of Satan. There's no neutral ground. There's no peace treaty with evil. It's either Jesus' kingdom or Satan's kingdom. And it looks a little different between the Pharisees and the family, but even what the family is doing is to play into the hands of evil. They're trying to bind Jesus, and Jesus is saying, no, my job is to bind evil, and if you're trying to hold me back and trying to control me and trying to put categories in your lines around me, you're stopping me from doing the very thing that you need, which is, dest- which is to destroy evil for you. This is the ministry of Jesus, what he's come to do. This is what Mark is, how he's layering it, how he's communicating it to us. So a twisted, for us, a twisted an intoxicating identity through nationality, through sexuality, through ethnicity is to play right into Satan's hands because that's, those are sub-identities to the overarching identities. If we try to get validation through earthly identities, we try to get verification and Acceptance through our earthly identities will be, will will have more division, will be at each other's throats, and that's what's happening in our culture. Jesus shows us a better way. He shows us there's an invisible connection. Once you're in Christ, once you belong to God, there's an invisible connection that ties you together that's deeper than any other connection you could ever have. Even Mary, who Catholics call the mother of God, even Mary could not rely on her bloodline with Jesus. I mean, I'm sure Jesus resembled his mother in certain ways. She's his biological mother. Even she is on the outside of this. Even she couldn't rely on, well, I'm your mother. You look like me. You have the same genetic code as me. You have, you know, we're both Jews in one, you know, which is absolutely true. Even her. See, nobody can rely on any heritage, whether it's familial or institutional to presume inclusion in God's kingdom. You cannot presume inclusion in God's kingdom. No association can do it. Whether it's, it's a family bloodline thing, or it's something like a christening, or it's something like a denomination or a church association or affiliation, you cannot rely on any type of heritage to say you're in God's family. It is only by personal faith in Jesus. Even Mary had to have personal faith in Jesus. Her relationship with God was based on this. Is she willing to obey the words of Jesus? Not based on the fact that she's Jesus' mother. Didn't matter. It's this. Jesus says it. I mean, he says it. His mother's outside the door. You're my mother. You're my brother. You're my sister. If you do the will of God, there is a magnetic, powerful force that connects you together. So we, and this is, this shows you the difference between true disciples and false disciples. False disciples try to find their identity in God through all kinds of other ways, trying all kinds of excuses. Well, I was baptized here. I was born here. I was raised here. This is my heritage. This is my skin color. This is what defines me. And Jesus, in this one line, 
destroys all of that. Don't listen to the doctrines of men. Listen to the doctrines of God. Jesus is God in the flesh, and he's saying, this is how you're saved. It has to be by personal faith. You have to believe. You have to believe it. Not because you have done anything good, but because you believe he did it. He did it on the cross for you all day, every day. It's Jesus. So we have to stop binding Jesus We're trying to control him, trying to define him, trying to make him do what we want him to do. You have to stop doing that. That's false discipleship. Instead, you have to surrender. You have to sit, you have to come into the house and sit at the feet of Jesus and say, What you say, I believe. What you say, I believe. And that's what qualifies you is that faith. Now, what happened to our friend, our two friends, Will Ford, who is a descendant of slaves from Louisiana, and his friend, Matt Lockett, who discovered that it was his family farm that the last battle of the Civil War defending slavery had been fought. And how does it relate to our passage today? Well, as they continued to learn, Matt's at this visitor center. And he starts asking the guy at the visitor center, more questions. And this guy was very knowledgeable. And he told Matt, he said, you know, when this battle was over and General Lee had surrendered, the slaves that were on this farm, on Lockett's farm, they left and some of them went to the deep south. Some of them went to Louisiana, where Matt is from. And he says, you know, because they weren't educated, some of them had their names spelled wrong. And it was common in that day with the the institution for slaves to take on the names of their masters. And through more research, they discovered that it was Matt's family that had owned Will's family. And the prayer pot that they'd been traveling around the country with had belonged to Matt's family. And had been saved, preserved by Harriet Lockett. Matt said after 10 years of becoming friends with Will, deep friends, of seeking unity, of traveling around the country in this prayer movement, to suddenly learn his part of the story, his connection to the story was very painful for him because he felt a lot of shame, a lot of sadness over the fact that his family had enslaved Will's family because Will was his friend. And they built this identity together as a team, a prayer team, a unifying team. And he'd heard the story over and over again in this prayer kettle, only to discover it was his family's and his family, his family's farm and his family who had enslaved Will's family. But Matt didn't stay in that place. There was some shame. But he didn't stay in that place. God showed him something. As he actually... Then they unlocked the key, the missing connection between his whole family history. They discovered the whole thing. And he also found a locket who was a Methodist circuit preacher, a revivalist and an abolitionist who would travel around preaching and declaring freedom. So Matt had been shown the dark past, the evil past, the horrible past, but also he'd been shown a redemptive past. And the question that they raise, that Matt and Will raise, is which past are you going to choose to lean into? Will, 
Well, Ford, who had the prayer kettle, he makes this point. He, he says, actually, there's a lot of, there were a lot of white abolitionists who themselves, because of the message they taught and because of their prayers, they were also praying for the freedom of slaves. And so now with this prayer kettle, they say, we're not just joining in with the, the prayers of, of slaves of our ancestors, we're actually joining in to the, with the prayers of white abolitionists as well, who many had their houses burned for what they believed. Many were shot for what they believed. Many were tarred and feathered for what they believed. And even some of them were lynched for what they believed. Will says that his baggage with white people went deep. He says that when he was 13, he was being chased by a group of boys who called him the N-word and threatened to kill him. He says at the age of 19, he was accused of shoplifting, and then an officer tried to provoke him to justify an arrest. And he says at the age, in his 30s, he bought a house in a new neighborhood, and once a week, for the first three months, driving into the neighborhood, the same police officer would pull him over. And Wells said, obviously those are wrong and traumatic things. Wells said that he'd taken those three things and that he had projected them onto other white people. And he said his baggage was deep and that God spoke to him through this prayer movement, through this connection with his friend Matt Lockett, that he had to give up his unforgiveness and give up his bitterness. Two men, both led by dreams, supernaturally, by dreams in the night, led to the Lincoln Memorial on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, where Martin Luther King Jr. said that he had a dream of the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners sitting together at the table of brotherhood. And that literally became true supernaturally true on that day through their friendship. What did Jesus do in our passage right before he gave them this line where he says what his true mother and brother and sisters is? Verse 24 says, And looking about at those who sat around him, like a dramatic pause. Mark wants us to see this dramatic pause. Listen, Jesus takes a good look he looks at every single person. He knows exactly what we look like. He knows some of us have longer noses, stubby noses, big ears, small ears. Some have a lot of hair. Some have no hair. Some, we're all different shades, all different shapes and sizes. Of course, of course, Jesus sees all of that. But you know what? It doesn't matter to our identity in him. It just doesn't matter. It's not, not that it doesn't have value. Not that there's not good things in there. But, but to belong to Jesus doesn't Matter, we have the greatest identity, we have the greatest redemptive moment of history where a sacrifice was made, where the master became the slave, and that slave interceded for us, and that master who became a slave who interceded for us was executed for us. You could say, maybe even you could say he was lynched for us. So that our shame, our sin could be taken, and that's the only way it can be taken. Give up all your earthly allegiances for Jesus. They will not satisfy you. They will not help you. They will not save you. 
only Jesus can. Only Jesus can give you that hope, that meaning, and that identity in him and his family. So we need to sing. We need to be unified together in the power of song that God gives us to exalt his name. This sermon today was titled, The Color of Faith. What is the color of faith? Well, maybe it's transparent. Maybe it's, I guess water is kind of transparent. It has a, a hue, a blue hue to it, I guess. But the baptism waters that you go into, is that the color of faith? Well, yeah, that's by faith, isn't it? Maybe it's the color of blood. Maybe the color of faith is the color of blood because it's only by the blood of Jesus that we come in.